Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. It's my privilege to be reading with you through some of the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was one of those men of God greatly blessed in the 19th century. He was born on 19th of June, 1834, and served as a particular or Calvinistic Baptist in London, primarily throughout his ministry, known often as the Prince of Preachers. He is very much gifted to hold up Christ before our eyes. And as we keep insisting, our study in these podcasts is not Spurgeon, but the Christ that Spurgeon so effectively preached with the graces and gifts that the Lord had bestowed upon him. Now, if you'd like to find out more about these sermons, you can follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up for a weekly update at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you'll get a note telling you which sermons we're reading in any given week. And this week, it's sermons 199 through to 205. And each week, we focus in on one particular representative sermon. And this week, it's number 201. And 201 is a sermon entitled The Outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it was preached at the Music Hall in Royal Surrey Gardens on a Sabbath morning, 20th of June, 1858, from the words of Acts 10 and verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Spurgeon's introduction is uh, typically blunt and straightforward. The Bible is a book of the revelation of God, the God after whom the heathen blindly searched and for whom reason gropes in darkness is here plainly revealed to us in the pages of divine authorship so that he who is willing to understand as much of Godhead as man can know may here learn it if he be not willingly ignorant and willfully obstinate. The doctrine of the Trinity is specially taught in Holy Scripture. The word certainly does not occur, but the three divine persons of the one God are frequently and constantly mentioned, and Holy Scripture is exceedingly careful that we should all receive and believe that great truth of the Christian religion, that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God, though they be each of them very God of very God, yet three in one and one in three is the Jehovah whom we worship. That's a lovely, simple, at least in terms of human language, declaration of the doctrine of the Trinity. And Spurgeon's point is that the Father and the Son and the Spirit all have their share in the work of creation and salvation. Both of these great acts are the works of the triune God, and we should by no means be excluding the Holy Spirit from our consideration. And it is to the work of the Spirit that he specially directs our attention in this sermon, and he tells us why. It's because this sermon, being preached in 1858, is taking notice of the fact that in America at this time, God was pleased to be stirring up men to pray. There was a, a prayer revival, a, a revival of praying and then a revival of true religion in answer to prayer. And Spurgeon is conscious that reports are starting to filter in of the number of people who are being uh, stirred up 
and then others being converted as a result of the Holy Spirit's work in America. Now, bear in mind that at this time, Spurgeon is already preaching to thousands of people, and yet he is eager to know more of the Spirit's work among them, and he therefore is calling upon us to plead for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for a distinct operation of God in London at this time. And it's a a brilliant summary then that he gives us of the way in which the Holy Spirit works and why we ought to desire him to work, not just to an ordinary degree, but even to an extraordinary degree, even if the work that he does is, as it always will be, of the same kind. And we'll come back to that distinction as we work our way through. So he's going to try, first of all, to describe the method of the Spirit's operation. Secondly, the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit's influence. And thirdly, ways and means by which, under divine grace, we may obtain a like falling down of the Spirit upon our churches. Now, bear in mind, he's not talking about falling down because the Spirit's in our churches, but if you like, a pouring out of the Spirit, a a coming of the Spirit to God's people in a distinct way. So, first of all, the method of the Holy Spirit's operations. He says we can explain what the Spirit does, but how he does it, no man must pretend to know. The work of the Holy Spirit is the peculiar or distinctive mystery of the Christian religion. Almost any other thing is plain, but this must remain an inscrutable secret. That is something that you you can't uh, see into the depths of, which it were wrong for us to attempt to pry. He's simply emphasizing the the sovereignty and in some ways the, the quietness, the unpredictability of the Holy Spirit's operation. You cannot tell where the wind is begotten and you cannot tell where the Holy Spirit is coming from, but you can see when he is present. And so focusing especially on this uh, operation of redemption, uh, salvation, I should say regeneration, And so, focusing particularly on this work of regeneration and what the Spirit does in the the heart and mind of a man or a woman who is under his saving operations, first of all, the Holy Spirit awakens the mental powers. Again, emphasizing that he does not give man any new mental powers. He doesn't bestow reason because already reason has been given, but he does teach our reason. He does set our reason right. He enables us to think in a way that we never would have done unless the Spirit had worked because sin blinds the mind. So the Spirit does not give man a will, says Spurgeon, for man has a will before. But what does change is that the Spirit makes the will that was in bondage to Satan free to the service of God. It's the liberating of the faculties of the mind. Remember, he says, there's no power in man so fallen, but that the Holy Spirit can raise it up. However debased a man may be, in one instant, by the miraculous power of the Spirit, all his faculties may be cleansed and purged. And so it is that the Holy Spirit brings light into the mental darkness of those who are dead in trespasses and sins. He gives him a new understanding, so that you can actually 
discern what is right and wrong according to God's standard, and he will turn your heart toward him so that that one who was unwilling is not brought against his will, but brought willingly because he is made willing. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit gives to men powers which they never had before. And again, he's not talking about uh, some extravagant external demonstration. Rather, he's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit imparts life to us. There's communion with Christ. There's a, a spiritual reality that previously had not existed that there was no appetite for, no capacity for, no real desire for God and his glory for his works. And so it is that the Holy Spirit works this salvation in human beings. As the body without the soul is dead, so the soul without the spirit is dead. And one work of the spirit is to quicken the dead soul by breathing into it the living spirit. And that's what the Spirit does spiritually to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. So there are new capacities, new uh, abilities, new spiritual vitality that had never before existed in a man. And Spurgeon says that in awakening powers already possessed, but which were asleep and out of order, and in putting into man powers which he did not before have, this is the operation of the Holy Spirit. So uh, the, the Spirit puts the machinery together properly and also imparts power to the restored machinery so that the whole thing moves. He puts our mental powers into their proper order and condition, and then he puts a living, quickening spirit within a man so that all these move according to the holy will and law of God. And he wants us to understand that having done this, the Holy Spirit continues to work in someone. Because the Holy Spirit, if he were to just set the wheels in motion and then step away, none of us would reach heaven. We need to have these blessings uh, not just granted, but maintained and sustained in the soul. And he also emphasizes that all the former part of what he's mentioned is done instantaneously. Now, Spurgeon here uh, uses a couple of different words, conversion and regeneration. And he's talking about that moment in which a man or a woman passes from darkness to light. That is an instantaneous work. At one point we were dead and now we are alive. I'm not sure that he's suggesting or denying, whichever way you want to take it, that there aren't uh, operations of the Spirit that bring us to that point. He's not a preparationist, but you notice, for example, how he talks about the, the conviction of sin in other sermons, by means of which the Spirit brings us to the point when we are ready to cast ourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But his point is that there is this moment in which a man becomes a new creature in Christ. Now, some people may not even be able to tell what that moment specifically was, but they can say, I was dead, but I'm alive. I was blind, but now I see. And the, the, the instantaneous supernatural influence of God, the Holy Ghost, among the sons of men is undeniable. And the positive side of that is that as preachers or 
Christians listening to sermons, praying for our friends, speaking the truth to brothers and sisters in the flesh or family, other family members or neighbours or colleagues, we can anticipate and expect that God will save and he will save immediately and once and for all. Now Spurgeon's second point, his second main heading, is the absolute necessity of the Spirit's work in order to conversion. There is a necessity, he says, that the preacher himself should be under the influence of the Spirit, and I have constantly made it my prayer that I might be guided by the Spirit even in the smallest and least important parts of the service, for you cannot tell but that the salvation of a soul may depend upon the reading of a hymn or upon the selection of a chapter. It's reasonably well known that Spurgeon alleged that as he went up into his pulpit, which uh, was more of a, a platform with a table on it, that as he set each foot on each step, he would tell himself, remind himself again, and almost offer it as a prayer, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, I think there's a danger today, especially in many contexts, that reformed Christians, as Spurgeon would have been, a Calvinistic Baptist, we know all the things the Holy Spirit isn't and all the things that he doesn't do. But Spurgeon is a man who understands that the reformed tradition, that the great stream of historic biblical Christianity which he has inherited, is alive with this spiritual vitality. And Spurgeon wants us to understand, and, and perhaps we need to ask ourselves, how much do I anticipate, plead for, seek after the influence and operations of the Holy Spirit in the work of ministry? Do I pray that for myself if I'm a preacher? Do I plead it for my soul if I'm a hearer, that the Spirit would be in operation as the sermon is declared? Rest assured then, he says, that when any part of the sermon is blessed to your heart, the minister said it because he was ordered to say it by his master. The Holy Spirit must rest upon your preachers. Let them have all the learning of the wisest men and all the eloquence of such men as Demosthenes and Cicero. Still the word cannot be blessed to you unless, first of all, the Spirit of God has guided the minister's mind in the selection of his subject and in the discussion of it. Now, bear in mind, and listen back to some of the previous um podcasts if you want to check this out. Spurgeon is no wild-eyed enthusiast and he's not typically going to just stroll into the pulpit and hope that the Spirit would supply something to preach there and then. But from the very moment in which a man begins to prepare his sermon, uh, he's not just relying on his commentaries, on his friends, on his counsellors, He's relying upon God the Holy Spirit both for the preparation and delivery of his sermon in the use of the means that God himself has provided. And so, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we are hoping that these men will preach. But the preacher and the hearers both need to know this spiritual force. And so Spurgeon talks now to the absolute necessity of the Spirit's work in the conversion of men. Why? Because it's quite certain that men cannot be converted by physical means. 
You cannot threaten anybody into the kingdom. You cannot beat anybody into the kingdom. You cannot drag anybody into the kingdom. And you cannot do you cannot make someone a Christian by physical force. He talks about the man who tried to wind up his watch with a pickaxe. And he says that man was wise compared with the man who thought to touch mind through matter. So you cannot push someone or drag someone or force someone by physical agency into the kingdom of God. But beyond that, a man cannot be converted by moral argument. You cannot just push someone mentally any more than you can physically. You cannot simply force them to acknowledge that there is right and that there is wrong and then uh, drag people into the kingdom by moral argument or moral suasion, as he calls it. Sometimes we, we confuse winning an argument with winning a soul. And there are many people who, perhaps uh, if you're clever or, or witty or you, you know your, your Bible, you can run rings around some people. But that's not the same as actually bringing Christ to bear upon their souls and them coming to the point at which they cast themselves upon Christ for salvation. So let's not forget that not only can you not bully someone into the pulpit physically, but neither can you bully them morally and mentally. It's not just a matter of winning an argument. And so he now flips it a bit more positively. If you'll think just a minute what the work is, you'll soon see that none but God can accomplish it. In the Holy Scripture, conversion is often spoken of as being a new creation. And so he asks them, if you talk about creating yourselves, I should feel obliged if you would create a fly first. Create a gnat, create a grain of sand. And when you've created that, then you may talk about creating a new heart. And the point makes itself. Then the work of creation is said to be like a resurrection. We are alive from the dead and the same argument. So who can make themselves alive? Can the dead in the grave raise themselves? So if any minister thinks he's the converter, go and raise a corpse. And when you've done the lesser, you can do the greater. Stand in the cemetery and bid the dead rise. No, this must be the work of the Holy Spirit. And even then, if you could save yourself, how opposed to salvation are men dead in their trespasses and sins? He says, if we could make our hearers all willing, the battle would be accomplished. Well, says one, if I'm willing to be saved, can I not be saved? Assuredly, you can, he says, but the difficulty is we cannot bring men to be willing. If the progress of the Christian religion, says our preacher, depended upon the voluntary assent of mankind, it would never go an inch further. But because the Christian religion has with it an omnipotent influence constraining men to believe it, it is therefore that it is and must be triumphant till like a sea of glory it spreads from shore to shore. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He awakens powers men possess, but which are dead, and he gives powers which man had not possessed. What, how, why is this so necessary? Because nobody can be saved apart from these supernatural operations, not by physical force, 
not by mental force, but by a power that God alone exerts for a resurrection from the dead, making willing the hearts of those who were not willing before. And now, if that's what we desire, if that's what we want, if that's the kind of spiritual operation that we're desperate to see in our own time and place, what can we do? It is quite certain, listen to the confidence and listen to the joy, quite certain, beloved, if the Holy Spirit willed to do it, that every man, woman and child in this place might be converted now. If God, the sovereign judge of all, would be pleased now to send out his spirit, every inhabitant of this million-peopled city might be brought at once to turn unto the living God. Without instrumentality, without the preacher, without books, without anything, God has it in his power to convert men. Now, do we believe that? Do we actually believe that on any given Sunday when a preacher stands up to make the word of Christ known that it is within the power of God to bring every person in that place into his kingdom if he so wills it? That the preacher might go into the open air and it could be that every person passing by would stop, be convinced of their sin and be converted, putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we believe that God has that power? And his point then isn't that God doesn't use means, but that we must first look to the God who gives the means and blesses them. If you would have the Holy Spirit exert himself in your midst, you must first look, first of all, look to him and not to instrumentality. We must rise above the mere instrument. We must not imagine that Uh, Just because we've got, say, for example, a a gifted preacher or an eloquent sermon or a comfortable building or whatever else it may be, that the Holy Spirit is somehow obliged to operate. And perhaps that's important for us to remember in days when we are... I think accustomed to imagine that, that there are men to whom the Holy Spirit is somehow yoked. One of the obnoxiousnesses of the current age is, is that we, we tend to imagine that the Holy Spirit is, is somehow tied to a certain level of celebrity. So, oh, there's a Christian who's on television. Let's get him along. Why? Because people will listen to him. That's nonsense. It's not denying the giftedness of certain people. It's why we're reading Spurgeon and we're not reading a number of other men. But even the gift itself, without the blessing of the Holy Spirit, is not going to accomplish anything. And Spurgeon wants to look above the gifts and to set our eyes on the giver. He says if God makes the distinction even between his own son as an instrument and the Holy Spirit as the agent, because Christ said greater works than these you shall do because I go to my father in order to send the Holy Spirit, how much more ought we to be careful to do that between poor puny men and the Holy Spirit? So you never say, well, so many people were converted by Mr. So-and-so. So many people were converted by Spurgeon. So many people were converted by Lloyd-Jones. So many people are being converted by, name your preacher, MacArthur or or Lawson or Piper or whoever it may be that, that people tend to put upon a pedestal, perhaps in the wrong way. 
No, if a man is converted, he has not been converted by man. Instrumentality is to be used, and we're grateful for the instruments. But it is God who gives the increase, and we must not lose sight of that. And then again, if we would have the Holy Spirit, beloved, we must each of us try to honour him. And this again is a travesty of the modern age in too many places. There are some chapels into which if you were to enter, you would never know there was a Holy Spirit. Now, perhaps that is a reaction against some of the the mania and the excess of a modern charismatic movement. But the, the, the response to that is not a denial of the Holy Spirit. It's the point at which we might want to say, hey, give me back my truth. If you're a true Christian, there's a proper sense in which you are, scripturally speaking, a charismatic. You believe in the person, in the work, in the gifts, in the operations of the Holy Spirit. What you deny is that he works in ways that are beyond the proper teaching and bounds of scripture. So you have to insist upon the, the, the Spirit's work in our midst. You have to believe it positively, not just, as we've already said, believe all the things he isn't and all the things he doesn't do. Until our churches honour the Holy Spirit, we shall never see him abundantly manifested in our midst. Let the preacher Always confess before he preaches that he relies upon the Holy Spirit. Let him burn his manuscript and depend upon the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit does not come to help him, let him be still and let the people go home and pray that the Spirit will help him next Sunday. Do we go into the pulpit? I believe in the Holy Spirit. I am not looking for signs and wonders. I am not expecting to speak with tongues. I am not an apostle. I am a minister of the gospel. I am not a a, a miracle worker. There are not going to be any immediate healings here, but I do believe in the power of God to take the word that is preached and to carry it with spiritual force into the hearts of men and women, that the saints of God may be stirred up afresh and that those who sit here dead may be made alive by the power of God's word and God's spirit. These are the things that we ought to be expecting and desiring. We must honour the Spirit and not dismiss him simply because others abuse him. And so in the use of our agencies, in in the work that we do, do we honour the Spirit. We often begin our religious meetings without prayer. All wrong, says Spurgeon. We must honour the Spirit. Unless we put him first, he will never make crowns for us to wear. He will get victories, but he will have the honour of them. And if we do not give to him the honour, he will never give to us the privilege and success. And so he says, if you would have the Holy Spirit, let us meet earnestly together to pray for him. Remember, the Holy Spirit will not come to us as a church unless we seek him. For this thing will I be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. Do we then pray? Spurgeon, a man who'd known much blessing already, made it a point to hold special prayer meetings to seek God for the reviving of religion the stirring of the hearts of men and then subsequently the rolling out of the gospel with power to others also. 
Let us meet and pray, he says, and and we need to hear this today. I'm persuaded of it. Let us meet and pray, and if God does not hear us, it will be the first time he has broken his promise. Come, let us go up to the sanctuary. Let us meet together in the house of God and offer solemn supplication. And I say again, if the Lord does not make bare his arm in the sight of all the people, it will be the reverse of all his previous actions. It will be the contrary of all his promises and contradictory to himself. We have only to try him and the result is certain. In dependence on his spirit, if we only meet for prayer, the Lord shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. O Lord, lift up thyself because of thine enemies. Pluck thy right hand out of thy bosom. O Lord, our God, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, what a wonderful way to finish. What a, what a prayer to put upon the lips and the hearts of God's people. I wonder if it's in our hearts and I wonder if it's upon our lips. Again, we need to know what we're praying for. We need to make sure that we are not praying amiss, not praying for the wrong thing or for the wrong reason and with the wrong motive. We desire the glory of God in the earth and that must begin among God's people. And it doesn't necessarily begin with a with a great outburst of uh of praise to God and, and and a great bringing in of those who are lost. We often imagine, I think, that that revival happens to other people. We're fine. We just need them to be saved. No, when the Spirit of Christ draws near, then there is, first of all among his people, a renewed de- devotion and dedication to God. And after that, we trust to see a revived church with the blessing rolling on and rolling out so that with the Spirit of God at work in our midst, there's greater holiness, there's greater purity, there's greater love, there's greater affection, there's greater devotion, there's greater conviction, there's greater commitment. And as the world then sees the church as it ought to be, then the glory of God is seen in salvation. So may the Lord indeed make bare his arm in our days and in each of the places where we're calling upon his name. And I hope you'll be back next time to hear a further encouragement, Sermon 210, next time, God willing, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Thanks very much for listening. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information, and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.